Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I've always believed it's important to recognize those who helped blaze the trail, and before there was Dead for Filth, there was Gay of the Dead, a celebrated column in Fangoria created and curated by today's guest. In addition to being a notable journalist, he's a prolific playwright, screenwriter, and novelist. His gay horror sci-fi film Socket pushed genre boundaries, and his recent novel adaptation of Night of the Living Dead reimagined a classic. Please welcome to the show, Sean Abley. Wow, I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said so. <laughs> um, I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited. Glamorous ex- Hollywood. Oh. Glamorous Glendale. Are Glamorous we allowed to Glen- say where we are? We are, because at the end, in the credits, there's this like pre-canned thing that I record oh. where I say that we were uh, we record here in fabulous Glendale. But here in, in this studio mm-hmm. uh, that we're currently recording in, mm-hmm. this actually used to be the makeup studio of Joe Blasco. Who, no way. Yeah, who did The Addams Family and oh. Shivers for David Cronenberg. So there is some prestige wow. to, to journeying here to Glendale no Studios. Idea. It's so unassuming. Who knew? Well, that's what we like. We like, uh, we like it to creep up on you. Right. Good. Well, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, why don't we kick things off the same way I start every show with the mm-hmm. same first question I ask every guest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's simply this, why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your entry point? Why do you think horror connects? However you choose to answer, but why horror? Mm. I think that answer honestly has changed for me over the years. Um, at one point when I was a kid, well, I had, uh, as, as as difficult as my relationship with my parents has always been, the one thing I think they did right was introduce me to horror films. Like my my dad and my mom were both big horror movie fans. We would, they would take me to the drive-in to see things like Death Race Two Thousand and Empire of the Ants when I was way too young to be seeing movies like that. <laughs> and um, and you know I went with my mother to Friday the Thirteenth when it came out. Um, back then I don't know it was just fun I guess. But as as time has gone on, oh, this is so weird to me. Horror is almost comfort food in that I used to watch it before bed, like when because I'm a lifelong insomniac, right? Right. But if you watch a horror movie, you get like the beginning, middle, and end more than any other film. You like you think it starts, you know, low, and then in the middle, it's like a pulse pounding, ah, and you know, endorphins, and it's happening, and then you get the ending, and so you sort of taper off, and that's kind of what I needed to get to sleep, quite honestly. So, um, I don't know why horror, um. It is such a difficult question. I, I wonder, is it just in my DNA? I, I don't know. Um, it's, I also, horror for me has, what I enjoy has changed over the years. Okay. I used to really love stuff that was really um, uh, explicit and really gory and just, you know, like right there in your face and cruel. And I, as, I've, as I've gotten older, I appreciate um, the sort of psychological end of it more. Um, I don't know what that says about why horror, but that just sort of popped in my head. Um, well, I think it shows that taste change. Right. And, you know, you're, you're, how you see the world changes, right? Like as a kid, well, here, okay, here we go. Here we go. As a kid, you know, I was a gay kid in Helena, Montana growing up. And I always knew I was gay. I didn't have any like, ugh, you know, oh, fine, this is terrible. I want to change this part about me. That was never the case. But what was the case is I was a gay kid in Helena, Montana. You know, right. it's not the most. To, I love my home state. I am very loyal to it as a purple state. It is, you know, very welcoming to gay people at, at the moment. But when you're, you know, eight, you know, right. <laughs> you don't see that that in your eight and the you know seventies. You don't really necessarily see that. So, I don't know. Horror as revenge fantasy. Horror as watching the bad 
people ultimately fail. I mean, that's now now the bad people never fail because there's always the tag and it's like, oh, they're still alive. You didn't kill the monster. Right. But back then you could see bad people actually get their comeuppance, you know, or the bullies and that kind of stuff. Well, that's interesting because, of course, you know the themes of the show. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of connect horror to the queer identity. Mm-hmm. And in that discussion, you uh, said, you know, there was that outsider feeling mm-hmm. of growing up gay in, in Montana. Mm-hmm. So do you think that from an early age, especially considering the work that you would later do, mm-hmm. you always associated your maybe kinship with the genre with your queer identity? I think... It was more with the, I didn't connect it to queer, but I connected it to outsider. Right. I I remember because in 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 the, when I was younger, up through high school, up through college, and in my early days in Chicago after college, I felt like I was the only gay in the horror village. Like I didn't I didn't know why gay people would like horror movies. I couldn't imagine gay people liking all the violence and the gore and all of that stuff. And so I thought I was an outsider of an outsider. Um, So to me, horror movies were more about just being a nerd and not popular and a victim of pretty horrible bullying and feeling sort of marginalized in my family. Like, was this this thing that I could have? Um, And then uh, I... So uh, Tony Tampone, my hero... Uh, did an interview with Clive Barker and it was, well, Clive Barker actually came out first on, on in genre magazine. I don't know if you remember that. I do. You're old enough. I know I'm a bit (laughs) older than you are. Um, And then Tony wrote an editorial in Fangoria that was basically like Clive Barker just came out. Who cares? Right. And I was blown away and I wrote a letter to Fangoria and it was published and it was, you know, thank you for this. I've always felt like I'm the only gay person who likes horror movies and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, please publish my address so other gay horror fans can get a hold of me. And I got letters. I started getting letters from other gay people across the country, uh, one of whom I actually, you know, the, that all sort of faded away. But one of whom, Scott Witherall, if he's listening to this, um, he and I corresponded for a little while, lost track for decades. And then I ran into him again uh, fairly recently at a convention. Anyway, that's when. So I never in my formative years, gay Horror was not, you know, the gay allegory for me. It was the the loser allegory. It was the, you know, the victim, the bully victim allegory. Right. And so I have a hard time, and I don't want to, like, deny other people's experience, but, like, the whole thing about Carrie being a gay, you know, equivalent, I've never bought that. I've always thought it was just... Uh, about anybody who's marginalized, if that makes sense. Well, I think sometimes when we talk about queerness and otherness, it doesn't necessarily have to be gay. Right. It can be a a spectrum of minorities. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we, as as gay men, have co-opted the term queer to mean something kind of specific. Mm -hmm. But in a a grander sense, queer can mean a whole range of outsider. Because queer truly means, like, away from the norm. Right, different, yes. And so I buy Carrie as a queer narrative, but I also buy that, like, if you're a punk girl from, you know, Mm -hmm. Iowa who's just like, that's me, it is you. Right. Because you're outside of the norm, you know? I think that you don't have to be a gay man. It's just like, I think because we have heard that narrative both in our work from many filmmakers who are like, I saw myself as Carrie. But I think that a lot of people do. I think it's time for us to leave Carrie behind, quite honestly. That's interesting. Because if you look at the movie, she she 
you know, kills all the bullies, but then she dies. Right. And to me, that is one of the most destructive mindsets of the gay community is the, the eternal victim who goes down in flames looking great. Right. You know what I mean? Like we have, there's no other ending that could, there could possibly be, but while we go, you know, we're going to wreak our vengeance and, you know, the world will remember our name. (laughs) And I'm, I'm kind of done with that, honestly. And so the, 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 you want the hero to continue on and live. Yeah. The re- living well is the best revenge. Absolutely, yeah. and you know, I, I, I think we're at a point now. This is this is something that I get into. I've I've defended this film, and, and uh, go with me here. It's a bit of a long walk. All right, but I I am a big fan of uh, haute tension, okay. high tension. Yes. big big fan. Um, and you know, one of the one of the. Besides the uh, it doesn't all add up argument, right. which I ascribe to uh, uh, unreliable narrator, um, is the why does she have to be a lesbian? And why is she a crazy lesbian? Haven't we had enough crazy lesbians? And I feel, the, sorry, spoiler alert, <laughs> she's a crazy lesbian. Um, <laughs> I feel like we're far enough into it where the landscape has, if hasn't become perfect, but it's become markedly better. Right. And so we're at a point when we can have gay villains. We can have... And that's okay. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it's setting us back another decade. Right. Um, and so when I say it's time for us to leave Carrie behind, that's that for me, my personal, I mean, I know there are still people suffering in the, in the United States and in the world. And I know that not everybody's lucky as me to like get out of a, you know, a small town unscathed. Um, but I feel like if we perpetuate the narrative of gay as a victim in life and, and in horror movies, right. Um, that doesn't do us any good. Right. We should, you know, our framework should be, there are people suffering, but let's talk about the gay heroes or let's, or let's just talk about us woven into the fabric of everything. Good, bad, and you know, whatever. Well, I think that's been a discussion that I've had with uh, many different guests over the course of the show is that, We've hit a point in LGBT cinema where we do need a, a larger swath of representation, not just one one mm-hmm. box, because for the longest time we didn't have that at all. But I think that, yes, we are ready for gay villains. We're ready for gay characters across a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always said, if we want to be treated equally, we have to be willing to be treated equally. And so that means we will be the object of, you know, terrible reality shows. We will sometimes be the villain, sometimes be the victim, sometimes be the hero. Like we want to be woven into the fa- – I know that gets a little heteronormative, <laughs> <laughs> a phrase that I hate. Um, but, uh, you know, if that's, if that's our goal, then, um, I, you know, I understand we want to overcourse correct just to sort of shore it up a little bit. But eventually I think we – I don't know. Again, this is easy for me to say, sitting here, you know, married, doing well, you know, <laughs> right. happy gay man. Um, so I will I will certainly take those brickbats of people feel that I'm talking out my ass about my privilege. Well, let's put a pin in the privilege for sure. a second and, and go back to your journey into mm-hmm. the world of, of the genre. Okay. Uh, so you grew up watching movies with your parents. They took you to mm-hmm. see things. At what point did you know from watching these that you wanted to go beyond the realm of fan mm. into working in writing stories? Because you, you started writing at a fairly early mm-hmm. age, right? I did. 
I, I was a really sort of artistic kid. I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to write. Although the actor part was the part that manifested sort of consciously. Mm-hmm. I was always writing things, but I never really thought about that as a career for a long time. But I was, I, uh, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be in horror movies. Here's part of this whole like gay as villain thing. The gay, the villains were more fun. Yes. Like I wanted to play the killer. Like who doesn't want to play the killer? And I wanted to play me. And so I wanted to play, you know, me as a killer. And I was forever bothering my parents about like, if I was in an R rated horror movie, would you let me go to the premiere? Like that was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, my dad was like, I don't want to hear about this anymore until you go get into a play. Like go, I don't want to hear about your acting and this. Just go, go do it, and then we'll talk about it. And so then I went to community theater and started acting. Um, so it was pretty early on. Uh, as far as being a writer, I started out as a playwright in Chicago as part of my theater company, that I, the Factory Theater that I co-founded there. And I just started writing at that point sort of out of necessity. Um, Chicago's a big theater town. There's a lot, of, a lot to do, but not all of it was great at the time. And so some friends and I just started writing our own stuff. And then I started becoming a writer. And a lot of the plays that I wrote were like horror riffs or, you know, inspired by horror movies. I have one called Attack of the Killer Bees, which is literally like 10 horror movies all sort of rolled into one. Um, Barbara and Johnny from Night of the Living Dead survive. And they, you know, are being chased by the 50 woman and the body snatchers and all that. Anyway, so that that was in the in my 20s so that would have been in the 90s um and it wasn't until boy i got well i got a job on you don't know jack a cd-rom trivia game that was really big in the late 90s i was one of the writers i remember those yes and it was like the hot ticket right and they were doing it in chicago and i got a writing job on that and it was like the job to have and Hollywood was looking at the game and the writers, and I tried to unionize the shop at one point. And as a writer, and the owner, how'd that go? Uh, it, well, here's a, it got me to Los Angeles. I <laughs> I I went to the the so I tried to unionize the shop, and the president of the company it was one of those you know like software companies, so everybody's like in their tennis shoes or whatever. So when I say the president of the company, it was like just this other guy, right? That right. created it all. He's like, what do you, why do you want to unionize the shop? And I was like, it just came out of my mouth. I said, because I want to write for TV. And I hadn't really thought about it till then. But in that moment, I was like, oh, I do. I want to write for TV. And he's like, well, let me hook you up with an agent in Los Angeles. Basically, get on my face, kid. And he hooked me up with my agent. And six months later, I was in Los Angeles and I was working here. And that's when I thought, oh, I could actually do this. And my first spec script, because back then you had to write, spec scripts of shows that were already on TV right. was a Buffy spec script. And it had a queer character in it oh. long before Willow came out and uh, it got me my first jobs. Do you remember what your Buffy spec script w- was about? I do. It was about um, sirens. Uh, there was, a, you know, how in, in Sunny, Sunny Dale Vale. Am I, what am I? Dale. Am I, yeah. Dale. Yeah. Sunny Vale. Where's that? Sunny Vale's a real place. Sunny Dale, Dale is now a hole in the ground right? thanks to <laughs> the events of season seven. Right. Yes. Um, it was about a modern day siren who was controlling men with her singing voice. And the one man in the sort of Buffy sphere that was not controlled by it was this one kid. And you find out it's because he's gay. So he's not like not uh, not going to be wooed to her by her, you know, sexy singing, uh, and he helps save the day. 
Um, and Willow, he and Willow have a little relationship, and then you find out that he's gay, and you find out that Willow, Willow knew all along. And um, yeah, he was the hero, but he was also being bullied, and he and he had to move away um, be, to, to go to another school at the end of the episode. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. Also, sirens are something that weren't really utilized a lot in mm-hmm. genre TV, but I do know a 90s genre television show that did utilize sirens as a plot point in an episode, and it was a Disney program called So Weird, which you wrote an episode for. I wrote actually wrote three episodes of that oh, show. you wrote the first episode, if I'm not mistaken. I, di- I did, although they showed it out of order, I think. Um, it was one of the two. Yes, I was. That's an actually interesting story. So that was my very first job as a, as a, as a narrative writer. When I moved to Los Angeles, I was writing for game shows. Because that's what You Don't Know Jack was and, right. and various other sort of... Because you worked on the dating game, too, I right? worked on the dating game. <laughs> I worked on the dating game. That was right before I got so weird. Um, I, I'd written on a, a, game, a couple game shows, and then I wrote on one for Disney Channel called Mad Libs, based on Mad Libs, the, the, the book game. Right. Uh, and that got me my Writers Guild card. And then I went over to the dating game for a little while, worked with Chuck Woolery, a despicable human being. And <laughs> then uh, then I got so weird. And um, because of my connections with Disney, that got me in the door. And here's an interesting story. So I go to my very first um, – back then, the shows like on, on the Disney Channel – would not have a staff. They would usually have showrunners and then all the episodes would be done freelance. Right. So instead of everybody in a room breaking story, you would sort of go in and pitch your ideas and they would pick one or not and then they would send you off to write and they would, the showrunners would help keep the continuity of the show. Um, But you weren't all in the same room. So I went in for my very first meeting to pitch and at this point, it's not known if I'm going to get an episode. It's just going and pitch to them. Right. So I went in and pitched these um, episodes and as I'm pitching, the, the showrunners are this couple, John and Allie. And as I'm pitching these episodes, every once in a while, Allie will go, uh, no, my dad did that. No, yeah, my dad did that one too. No, no, that's a little too close to the one that my dad did. And I'm like, what is she talking about? And I'm terrible with names, but it suddenly hit me. And I looked down. I had a pad of paper in front of me with like all the information about where I was going for the meeting. I looked down and the couple's name John Cooksey and Allie Matheson. No. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm sitting with Richard Matheson's daughter. And I could not be a bigger fan of Richard Matheson. I am like, I mean, he is an idol. If there's anybody to whom I aspire um, as a writer, as far as TV stuff, it's him. And I just, I, I don't know why I didn't put it together before I got in the room. I wasn't thinking about her last name. And so then we started talking about Richard Matheson and I was just, I started gushing like a moron about him. And she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> good natured, but like, you know, we're there to talk about their TV show, not her dad's TV show. And, um, at one point she said to me, so just give me, get, what do you think of what, how would you characterize my father's writing? And I said, well, I think there's a real sort of thread of, conspiracy theorist running through it and she, she shot back try paranoid and that was like, <laughs> so anyway that's my the, um so that was a really great job they were really great to work for and i did three episodes over the three seasons uh one one each season um john and Allie left the show after the second season and the other showrunners came in and i did what did i do i did the the website that predicts the future right web space site s-i-g-h-d <laughs> um and 
Rewind, which was about backmasking on 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 music. You know, when you play it backwards, it tells you to worship the devil or whatever. Right. And then the Christine episode, which is about a car that drives itself. So for listeners who are maybe too young or too old to know mm. what, what So Weird is, So Weird kind of, well, not kind of, it rose out of the era of the mm. X-Files on television mm-hmm. where people were into that sort of moody, atmospheric genre fair. But it was the Disney Channel version. It was yeah. a, it was sort of X Files for kids, and it was about a rock star played by Mackenzie Phillips, who was having like a, a revitalized life on the road. Mm-hmm. And she took her daughter, who ran this website called mm-hmm. So Weird, and every tour stop she would investigate some sort of supernatural yeah. phenomenon. And her like disbelieving brother and his kind of like really cute friend. I remember him as really cute because I was right. young enough to think so. Now it would be creepy. Right. But um, I. Uh, I loved that show. I thought it was really heady for Disney I Channel. Too. Yeah. I thought it was so smart and it you know it was really dark because the the premise was Mackenzie Phillips' husband, the lead girl's father had died in under mysterious circumstances. And so she was still dealing with the death of her father and that came into play in the story over the the seasons like his ghost appearing and things. Um and you know, it was it was single camera shot on film or digital to look like film. In Canada, right? In Canada, right. Canada. Uh, a lot of ca- Canadian ghosts happening on that show. <laughs> they were very nice. Yes. Um, and it just, it really didn't pull punches. I was really proud of that show. Um, I had some really fun, I, of course I was never on set because I wouldn't be, but the premiere was here in Los Angeles and, um, my episode turned out to be the, I can't remember if it's the first one they aired or the second one they aired, but it was one of the first two. And, um, at the premiere party, Mackenzie Phillips was there and I, I just want to say something about Mackenzie Phillips. Lovely, lovely woman. She seems awesome. Oh, yeah. she was so nice to me. I told her, I, I'd found out that in the first episode that I wrote, there's a really complicated dialogue scene that they were having a lot of trouble with, and they almost scrapped it. And it was one of my favorite scenes in the in the the episode. And I found out that she was the one that was like, no, 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 we can't cut this. Give me a minute. And she pulled the cast together. And they rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, you know, over lunch. And then they came back and they got it. So it was because of her that she saved that scene. And I, so I got to meet her and she was just so generous and lovely and sweet. And uh, the uh, same night <laughs> party. So Henry Winkler was one of the producers, the one he's like a producer. That's right. The Fonz. And so I'm at this premiere party and they've shown my episode and somebody brings up Henry Winkler and Henry Winkler, uh, I'd like you to meet Sean Abley. And he's like, oh, I am such a fan of your work. I'm just, <laughs> I just, I'm such a fan. And then I said, well, thank you. You know, I wrote the the episode we saw tonight, and then I saw it in his eyes. Now he knew who I was. <laughs> he was totally bullshitting. <laughs> so now he truly was a fan of my work. But up until that moment, it was such a Hollywood moment. I couldn't believe it on my very first gig. Well, I don't know if you remember the, the first time we ever met in person. Uh, and I don't remember even the circumstances. But, like, mm. when we were in – it had to have been through, like, Barter Allen or somebody. Right. But you uh, – they and I knew that you had been doing Gay of the Dead for huh? Fangoria, but when we met, I was like, Oh my god, I was like, Didn't you write an episode of So Weird? <laughs> and then, of course, you know, we talked about it, and I uh, but I loved that show, and I was too old for the show by the time it yeah. came out, probably like it was for younger kids, mm-hmm. but I was like mid teens, but I uh, I I was into anything that was like serialized conspiracy, supernatural, yeah. and I thought it was so cool. It only lasted three seasons and then went away, and I don't think Disney's really done anything. 
on Disney Channel anywhere close to that since then, which is fine. Right. But, uh, you know. Well, they've sort of returned to two-camera sitcoms. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're cheaper, and I get it, and that's what the kids want these days. Um, but, I man, I love that show. I love that job. Now, the other thing I have to ask uh, in the world of children's mm-hmm. supernatural work, uh, another show that you wrote a few episodes for was Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the animated series. Yeah. That was fun. How how was that? How did you even come to that? Um, let's see. So one of the other writers on So Weird, Kevin Murphy, um, was did he and what did he end up doing? Somehow he ended up sort of between the freelance writers and the and John and Allie on So Weird, like like just another step in the process. Right. As the show started ramped up, and so he got to know my work, and we shared an agent, if not an agent. Maybe we shared an agent at the time. Anyway, Kevin Kevin Murphy then went on to be one of the um, uh, showrunners for the Sabrina show. And so they called me in to pitch episodes. And yeah, that was fun. I think that was my first animated stuff that I wrote. Um, And it was interesting. What did I write for that? I wrote, uh, ironically, that's funny. I wrote the Red Shoes inspired episode where Harvey Kinkle gets some uh, cursed red high tops. Can't stop (laughs) dancing. Um, which is funny because I just wrote a play based on the red shoes that is, that is, I'm leaving in three days to go do on the East coast. So it's all coming back around. Um, I wrote the Christmas episode, which comes up the Christmas, you know, every show has a a Christmas Carol episode and (laughs) I wrote the Christmas Carol episode of that show. I do love a Christmas episode. I I think you may be the first guest that I've ever had on that's written animated work. Um, in terms of writing for animation, do you find it more freeing because you don't have to worry about budget? You that interestingly, you do have to worry about budget in a certain sense, um, because every new character you create costs money. Right. So every time somebody has to sit down and re you know re draw somebody new, that costs money. Locations cost money. So there is a money aspect, but obviously not as much. Um, what it is free. What is freeing about it is you get to direct from the page. You know, as screenwriters, we always say, "Don't direct from the page. Don't direct from the page. Let the director do that." Right. You know, don't don't write your angles and all that stuff. Um, it, it is it required in TV animation writing that you you literally break it down angle by angle and you know action and perspective and POV and all that stuff. Um, so that's kind of fun when you are given the freedom to, to, to design your episode that way. You're really constructing it uh, in addition to writing it. So, yeah, it's um, it's an interesting world. Um, again, Sabrina was for Disney. And so we got I, I not only did episodes for that show, but I did these interstitials that played on ABC and UPN. Remember UPN? I do. So for some reason, this stuff was playing on some of the episodes aired on UPN, some of them aired on ABC. These interstitials aired on one of those two networks. And I wrote, I must have been a hundred of them. And it was all like how to reuse um, animation for each, each themed interstitial. Like one of the ones I wrote was things that are funny to say with a mouthful of food. And so you didn't have to have lip, lip sync. You, it could literally just be the same thing over and over with a different, different voice, you know, different words, um, that kind of thing. Now, did Melissa John Hart provide the voice of Sabrina for the show too? No, she did the aunts. So her her little sister did Sabrina. Oh, I love and that. Then, yeah, and then Melissa John Hart, who was one of the, I think, believe one of the executive producers with her mom, um, uh, did the uh, both aunts, 
And I don't know if you know this, but the 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 guy who created that show was Savage Steve Holland, who uh, wrote Better Off Dead, one of my favorite '80s movies. I did ever. not know that, but yeah. talk about a shift in tone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. I didn't really. I think I met Savage once. He would never. He wouldn't remember me from Adam. But um, <laughs> well, speaking of shift in tone, mm-hmm. you had gone. You had a decade of theater. Mm-hmm. in Chicago mm-hmm. you get onto you don't know Jack mm-hmm. and it propels you here where you did writing for a lot of shows most of which geared for kids mm-hmm. more or less yeah uh at what point did you cycle back around to the world of horror and is this around the time that you connected with Fangoria let's see so I god I'm trying to remember the time frame here I went from writing um, game shows to then writing narrative mostly for kids then to taking this weird detour into reality television which was terrible and soul-sucking but a lot of money and um and I, w- I without even really thinking about it was sort of leaving my narrative career behind at the time right and then through that I started producing low budget movies for people and I had no idea what I was doing but somebody wanted to do this short I'm like I'll produce it and so then <laughs> I just started learned um I think the only way to learn production is just throwing yourself into Absolutely. it because I, 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 they can tell you so much in film school, mm-hmm. but you don't know till you're standing there. I uh, the first production job that I ever did, I was just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. It scared the shit out of me. But yeah. that's how you learn. When you figure out that your job isn't to know everything, but it's to 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 not panic when you have to figure out something. That's right. when you become a good producer. I I agree. I think it's you have to be uh, strong enough to give an answer, mm-hmm. and then like later, if you change your mind, be okay with changing your mind. Yeah. But you can't. When someone comes and asks you a question, you either need to be able to say yes or no in the moment, and then later be like, okay, you know, I thought about it. But if you stand there and just stare at the person, right. that's when shit falls apart. Right. Yeah. Or even if the answer is I don't know, but let me find out. Exactly. Which is like my go-to <laughs> when I'm a producer. It's like let me find out for you, and I'll get back to you. Because then they know it's being handled and you're, you know, off to do what you need to do. Right. But so through producing, I, I'd written, so all this time I'm here, like, I think even before I got to Los Angeles, I've been writing horror spec scripts. I wrote one called Cannibal Clowns and Beauty Queens back in <laughs> Chicago in longhand as I was working at a, a discount ticket booth. Like it was what I was doing to buy my day. So it, I was here, I was writing these spec scripts and then I wrote the one for Socket um, and along the way was producing these other movies and I ended up producing Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror, um, one of the early, you know, gay, uh, horror movies. And that would have been, I think, 2005, 2006. And I also worked on Hellbent around that time, but I can't remember, which I got fired off of. We can talk about that if you want to. <laughs> um, and, and so... So I was sort of in that world of, of horror and making stuff. And while I was on the set of Gay Better Breakfast of Terror, um, producing this movie for two weeks, it was such a crazy production schedule that, and I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first, second second feature. Second feature? Um, uh, I mean, I didn't even know what a first AD did. Like, I was the producer. I didn't know what a first AD was. I know directors who still don't, so that's fine. I I literally was, like, looking it up on on driving to to Arizona where we shot that movie. But the the director was in the film, and so there was moments when somebody had to direct a scene or actually block it out or whatever because he was in the scene. We also got very tired. The climax of the movie is very complicated as far as shots 
and we were all like, we we literally was one of the last things we shot, so we're all exhausted. So I was sort of stepping in with other people and helping, and I realized I think I might be able to direct a movie. And up till then, I had sort of talked to my ex boyfriend about directing Socket if we could ever get the money together. But I was like, well, I'm gonna want to be there on set and, and you know dictate how things go. And now as a director, I understand how ridiculous that is. Like for to have somebody else just sort of standing over your shoulder co-directing with you, right? But anyway, I decided, oh, maybe I could do this. So on the way home, I got on my cell phone and called my ex, who was my ex at the time. We were st- we were friends, um, and said, I don't think I want you to direct this. I think I'm going to do it. I think I can do it. And he was cool with that? He was cool with that because he was not cool with me telling him that I was going to be looking over his shoulder the whole time <laughs> and did just not want to tell me. Because um, the first thing I produced, he directed. It was a short that somebody else wrote for themselves that he that asked my boyfriend at the time to direct and then I produced. Um, I don't know. That's a long-winded answer. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's how I got sort of came back into it. I always wanted to do it and it was always around. Right. That's when... So that's when I... Yeah, so that's how I got to Socket. And then from Socket, I sort of came back into Tony Timpone's orbit. He liked the movie a lot. And I ran into him a couple times at, at um, conventions. And then I was on the set of um, She's Got the Look Season 2, which was basically America's Next Top Old Model. <laughs> it was all <laughs> women over 35 that wanted to be models. And I was at, in Miami, and we were shooting in a zoo, and they painted the ladies up to look like jungle people of some sort and they put animals on them and the model who got pooped on by a bird was consoling the woman who got bitten by a monkey and they literally it was just like yeah it was just a moment i was just like i i'm i'm gonna kill myself i'm <laughs> why am i here and i'm not shitting you it's not hyperbole it's not made up my phone rang and it was tony tampone he said do you want to write a gay horror blog for vangoria and i was like yes <laughs> yes <laughs> And that was it. So that's how I so between those two things, it was a it was a couple years um, before I got to end up finally after all those years writing for Fangoria. I know it's crazy to think that you started writing a letter. Yeah, and then you started years later had a column. Yeah. Um. So talk to me a little bit about Gave the Dead mm-hmm. because Fangoria had never really done something like that mm-hmm. before. And what what was your mission statement in in going forth and doing that? Did you always know it was going to be interviews with filmmakers, or did you want to first start like just exploring films? How did you? Good question. Uh, it, well, Tony didn't really give me any parameters, and I actually found out later that it was Tom DeFeo's idea to do the gay blog. I know. So I'm like, you know, as 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 poorly as things turned out for Fangoria in recent days, months, years. Um, I will always be thankful to the two of them for that opportunity. Um, the, it was just gay horror blog. So they, they just sort of left it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I first started out, I think, writing a few little articles about things, but that was just not my jam. I, 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 I'm inherently a lazy person. And so <laughs> I decided to start interviewing people. And I decided to start interviewing people through email. That way I didn't have to transcribe. And so I just started reaching out to people about, you know, uh, being interviewed and everybody, most people said yes right away. Um, Who was the first interview of Gave the Dead? Do you know? I really don't remember. It was probably, some of the early ones were the cast of The Lair, uh, Brink, um, Alan Roe Kelly, 
Alan Roe Kelly, the uh, God love him. The minute, the minute it was announced that this blog was coming, I think the very first thing I got a press packet from him <laughs> in the mail. That's a hundred percent Alan. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know Alan really because I wasn't keyed into like the real. Although I had been sort of working in the gay horror world for a while, you know, it was it was fairly regional. Like you know, all those East Coast kids working together and you know, various, you know, regional places making these movies. They weren't getting a lot of national press. Right. Um, you would maybe see them at film festivals, but I just didn't know that crew at all. So this is funny. I, and I, I brought this up in my interview with Alan. He sent me all this stuff, right? And I'm looking through it all. It's like, Alan O'Kelly, Alan O'Kelly. And I don't see anybody that looks like an Alan on any of these pictures. I see like this, you know, this broad, you know, that looks like she's from some, in 1950s movie and then these other dudes I'm like, who's Alan O'Kelly so I in my interview I'm like who are you who of these people are you and um and that was I think I I'm not I don't want to take too much credit for this because I I I exist I existed on the back of Camp Blood right. which was like I think the first real gay horror sort of blog clearinghouse website right but talking with Alan Ta- you know, with uh, Bart Mastronardi, who, you know, it was the first time he he spoke about being gay in, mm-hmm. in print. The first time Alan had really talked about, you know, the, and I'm like, are you transgender or transvestite? And, and he's like, I don't really know. I just, you know, these are just the clothes that I like to wear. Yeah. Like people, you know, people weren't necessarily talking about that stuff, especially in the horror world. And uh, to me, it was just like, I'm just going to ask the questions that I think anybody would ask if they weren't being polite. Right. <laughs> Not obnoxiously, but you know what I mean? Like, if I, I'm going to ask these questions as with no filter, they can answer them if they want. But at the end of the day, I think this will do some good. So, I, you know, so, so that's, I don't know. Once that sort of formulated, once I realized, oh, I want to do these interviews and these could be really interesting and do these sort of career spanning interviews, then it became about um, how do I get how do I get information out of them that nobody else has? Right. And so I would, you know, Google these folks and then, and find out, you know, stuff they'd already talked about and then use that as a jumping point for new stuff. You are very thorough in interviews because mm-hmm. I was interviewed in the later stages mm-hmm. of Gave the Dead and I was surprised at some of the things that you dug up and you are very good at what you do. Well, you know, there's the internet. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great tool. It's our greatest foe. Yeah. Um, no, I think that the, the real power of gay of the dead is that you were willing to push the envelope and ask the questions that people were curious about because no one was talking about that mm-hmm. and i i you know with camp blood before you and uh gave the dead and uh, you know, something that we seek to do with this show as well is that there's always a need for it mm-hmm. and i still do you feel like even though time has has evolved and we do have these platforms we're still not being represented in the genre as well as we could be. Do you think that's true? I think there's always room for improvement. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, there was a moment there when Socket came out and Gay Ben Breakfast of Terror came out. They both came out about the same time. And and Hellbent and a few other films around that time. But I thought, oh, the gay horror genre, it's happening. Right. And it just didn't happen, I, I think. I mean, as a genre, I don't think that it really took hold. Right. Part of that is the fact that the bottom fell out of the independent film industry when the, the economy tanked and all those gay dentists with extra money to spend on giving it to someone to make a movie, like we're keeping their money. You know what I mean? It just sort, <sighs> of, sort of dried up. I miss the era of the gay dentist, honestly. Think, uh, yeah. 
Yes. I mean, I think there's still a ways to go. And I, and it does make me sad that I feel like what I thought was being built sort of dissipated. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's still out there, you know? Right. And, and do we need a gay horror genre? I don't know. I think we did. I don't know if we need that. It's sort of like the bear movement of which I am a part. You know, it's it's one of those things where any social movement w- with its success will make itself irrelevant. So the bear movement was like, oh, we need to get, you know, we need to force this new different body type of person into this world of homogenized gay men. And then it worked. And now it's sort of kind of we're just part of the fabric now. I love a good bear party. Can I just say this? (laughs) Anytime I ever go to like a gathering that's hosted by bears, it's always done upright. Right. There's good food. That's that's it. There's good food. I'm just going to buy into the stereotype. Um, I I didn't want to say it, but I'm glad that you did. Because, like, you know, I'll go out in West Hollywood to these events, and it's just like, well, we have this vegetable tray. I'm like, I I, I did not eat. So, like, if we could get, like, a grilled cheese up in this piece, that would be great. Yeah. The best food (laughs) I I ever have at parties, and I know you know these guys, the Linoleum podcast guys, uh, Alonzo Alonzo. and Dave, um, (laughs) who who are dear friends of mine, and I, my husband and I have dinner at their house, like, twice a month. Um, you know, there's their like holiday parties always have like the best food. Well, Alonzo truly is Mr. Christmas. Yes. Like he he exists <laughs> to propel the, the like joy of the holidays. Yes. Yeah. Well, I know he's been watching your stuff, which is funny. It's like I've sort of transitioned not out of horror, but into the sort of playwriting thing right now. And you are, have like taken this Christmas movie writing thing by storm, which is, I think for both of us, something that many people probably wouldn't have predicted we would do. No, and it's interesting too, because as you know, with with genre material, it's sort of evergreen in the way that people are always looking for new horror movies and new cult cinema, uh, even if it's not new. Like they're just looking for new things to discover. So I'll still hear from people who are watching Sins of Dracula or Tales of Poe or some of the shorts. And I, of course, am working on new horror projects. but then there's this whole world of the Christmas movies that you mm-hmm. reference that, you know, and, and most of the listeners know that I've written Christmas movies uh, for Lifetime and Hallmark and Ion. And there's a new one coming this year that mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm working on right now, as well as a thriller for Lifetime. Um, I'm sure Denise Richards is very thankful, right? Isn't, hasn't she been in at least one of yours? Yeah, she, and she's great. She's yeah. really great to work with. I made a movie. Uh, I wrote a movie with her where she uh, runs a bakery. Oh, good. But the funny thing is... Like she's ever eaten a carb, that girl. <laughs> well, they were gluten-free. <laughs> um, but the funny thing about it is is that uh, there is this t- two communities of, of awareness of the work that you do. And I've talked about this in interviews before in that I don't really approach the work differently. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just based on the situation the characters are in. Because in my brain, a Christmas movie and a cult film are kind of the same Mm because they have structure and they have rules they're Mm -hmm. just different kinds of cult films right but my favorite is i'll be at comic-con and i'll be like sitting at a table and like signing a poster of tales of poe and like someone's mom's like hovering in the background and she's like i love a christmas reunion and like (laughs) you know so i occasionally will like have a couple posters for those just in case like Mm -hmm. someone who's like their you know their punk brother and their cool mom you know right yeah uh and i love that as you said you have have kind of exploded into the world of play mm-hmm. uh, work. and But you've been doing it your whole life, as you said, I with, have. with uh, the factory theater. But this is a good time to bring up. You have started a new endeavor called Place to Order. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. So um, I'm nothing if not a self-marketer. <laughs> um, and I started this company um, a while ago. It's sort of, it, it sort of come back again in, in a new form. Originally it was... so. I accidentally wrote, I've been a playwright my whole life. I've 
I never stopped really doing it, but there was a moment after sort of in the middle of my, um, uh, reality TV days where a friend that I'd worked with in a theater 20 years ago Mm -hmm. had now taken over that theater and they were looking for plays for that summer, something for a family. And can you write something? And the play was, um, was that, I think that year was that the rise of the house of Usher was the play (laughs) that I wrote. So it was this whole thing about how, um, the events of Usher had happened, but now it was like the sequel or something like that. Um, and then I wrote another one called Dracula's Daughters, colon, a family comedy. And that play, ac- I accidentally wrote a play that high schools could do. And I got it published, and high schools just started doing it and over and over and over again. So I started doing some research, like, oh, there's a need for this. And I realized that there was a lot of terrible plays out there for young performers. And so I decided to create a company where I would approach high schools directly and say, do you need a play? All these other, all these other plays are garbage, which is so mean, (laughs) but that was my selling point. Right. Um, And I can write it for you specifically. And you know, if you need a play about bullying and it has to have 12 girls and two boys and it needs to be somehow connected to our curriculum of Shakespeare or something. And I'd be like, great, I will write that for you. And so that's where it started. What's the turnaround time? What if I came to you with that exact order? Mm-hmm. Like, I need to play with 12 girls, two boys, Shakespeare curriculum. From the initial order to delivery of play to a school, mm-hmm. how long does it usually take you? I would prefer it to take two months. I've done it in a shorter amount of time. One thing that I learned over the years, uh, you know, of my you know pluses and minuses as a writer, one of my pluses is I can get a first draft out really quickly. One of my best episodes of so weird was written starting starting at 11 o'clock at night with you know fade in and ending at six o'clock in the morning i wrote an entire episode in a night for that show and i was behind i mean it was due that next day and i like lollygagged (laughs) um so i can write really quickly but to like get it back and forth you know you write your draft you get it to the teachers they give you input or whatever so i would like to have a little oxygen little air in between all these things so about two months um now that's sort of gone by the wayside lately well because i was getting my mfa and i just didn't have time to do all these commissions right um and now i've started publishing with that company and it started with publishing my own stuff um you know the world of play publishing is completely different than it was when i first started in the late 80s early 90s where samuel french was like the only game in town and only if your play had been in New York, right? Now there's all these other publishing companies of which I'm with many of them, like Playscripts and uh, Brooklyn Publishers, um, that you know just take content that they deem as worthy rather than where it premiered. And now you can self-publishing is easy. Right. I mean, it's nothing. Um, Amazon facilitates it. They have a company that'll do it for you, and then uh, your stuff automatically goes on Amazon. So what I decided to do was. For plays that publishers wouldn't take, like I wrote this stage adaptation of L.A. Tool and Die, which is an old joke age uh, gay adult film. Um, So it's a porno. Um, (laughs) And no publisher would take that. No publisher would touch that. So I published it myself. And then I was like, oh, maybe I can do this for other people. So now what the company has, has transformed into is mainly anthologies, themed anthologies of plays. Um, I see myself as more of an archivist than, than a, a licensor of plays. So I'm publishing these collections right now and they're not all mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not all my work. Although a play of mine has appeared in most of the collections so far, but I've got three coming up that will have none of my stuff in them. So 
Well, speaking of the world of publishing, you also have written several books. I know. And uh, one of the books, Out of the Dark, is kind of an anthologized version mm -hmm. of some of the columns mm -hmm. of Gave the Dead with mm -hmm. some expanded information of right. you know, where are they now. But you also recently wrote a new novelized version of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Tell me about your decision to go there. <laughs> so it was purely based on money. Um, uh, only not not. I didn't come up with the idea. So what happened? What happened? What happened was um, my father-in-law uh, is was starting a a small publishing company, um, and he. I don't want to give too many details because he because because that's still happening and it's so it's it's innovative because it involves technology. Okay, but part an aspect of that was novelizations of movies in the public domain, and so one of the movies that's in the public domain, sadly, is Night of the Living Dead. Right, um, and I think we all know the story of why you know, they forgot to put the copyright notice on the opening frame when they changed the title of the movie. So it's always been in public domain. So he he hired me to write this this novelization of Night of the Living Dead, and I'd been wanting to write a novel for a long time, um, and this just seemed to be the perfect perfect um, uh, I don't know, opportunity. And I knew I knew that I was setting myself up for criticism by doing this because you know it's like we love George Romero. It's totally unfair that his movies in public domain. There's so many vultures. Right. I, and I I justify it by basically because <laughs> this is not so terrible because everybody else is doing it. At this point, Night of the Living Dead is, I feel, so, so commercialized in, in the realm of these offshoot projects right. that an, another one wouldn't. It would be different as if I'd like, you know, done the phantasm novelization because right. somehow by some weird, you know, legal thing that, that that I could do that. And Don Coscarelli was getting nothing. And, you know, this was this was well-tread ground. And I thought it would be a challenge to write to just to, to, to write something that was different than what was out there. And um, I think I did. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of that novel. It was really hard. Writing novels is hard. <laughs> Harder than plays and screenplays, honestly. It was, it was like, it took me a long time. It's funny you say that, though, because I have spoken to other writers who work specifically in prose, mm -hmm. and they kind of like freeze like a deer in headlights when you talk about uh, screenwriting. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but Del Howison, who is a editor in the world of horror and also owns Dark Delicacies, a popular location for horror enthusiasts. Where, where I think we've both had signings. We we've have. both had signings at, at Dark Delicacies in Burbank, That's California. That's true. Del has written books and mm -hmm. short stories, and one day he was talking to me about uh, trying to adapt one into a screenplay and I was like well why don't you and he was like oh, that's no way man no way so wow. I just think it's like you're saying that it's hard to do prose and yeah. then I've got a prose writer that's like not a screenplay never <laughs> so. I just it, it is interesting because to me writing a play isn't hard writing a screenplay isn't hard I mean not that it's not difficult work to come up with things but like the format it's not a mystery to me right but with writing a novel Here's a, here's the, my main takeaway. This may seem ridiculously trivial, but you can't use the same big word twice within like the same couple pages. Right. Like if you use the word, you know, fantastical, like if some character in your brain says, oh, my God, that's fantastical. You can't use that word again because people will go, oh, he just used the word fantastical twice. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's a, like you have to map every effing word of your of the book to make sure that you're not repeating yourself or. 
turns of phrase that would just come naturally. Oh, wait, no, I said it that way. Yeah, it is. It is like spinning a million plates at one time and really satisfying. Uh, well, tell me about the decision to go get your MFA, because mm-hmm. you are a working writer, you're a mm-hmm. published writer, but mm-hmm. what made you decide to pursue a terminal degree in the world of, of writing? Um, good question. Well, ev- originally it was so I could teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I have done a little academic guest faculty-ing, um, but it was really hard to get those jobs because all of them want an advanced degree. And uh, spoiler or not spoiler reveal secret reveal. I never finished my undergrad. Um, so I um, was, I mean, it was, you know, these people would want me to come teach and they have to bend over backwards to get me in there. Right. So I wanted to go and do that. And, and that was sort of the main thing. But as soon as I got there, it was, it changed. It's just, it's so, it's been a long time. It's been since the factory theater that I've been plunged into a creative environment like an MFA program. Um, it's like theater summer camp. Like all you right. do is theater. You know, it's not like undergrad where you have to do math, you know, and, and take a science. Um, you, all you do is what you want to do. And it is a joy, like every minute of it. And, and through that, I, you know, I never, I, I'm never, I've never taken a writing class before in my life. Like up until this MFA, I just started writing. I was just naive and just thought I could do it. And I've learned so much, you know, at the age of 50, um, I don't want to say that I wish I had back then, but I'm happy that I have now. Right. And I think it makes all my storytelling stronger. Um, having learned what I learned. Um, so yeah, so I'm working on my thesis. Um, and I'm heading back there for a month to do a play that I wrote that went to the Kennedy Center this past year. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. I mean, it went, it went to the Kennedy Center in a reading, I guess, part of the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. Um, which was a great honor, and uh, now it's getting done, and my school's doing it. So, well, uh, speaking of prestigious writings, yes, I would like to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your recent work on the Witchcraft franchise. Oh, the longest-running horror franchise in the world is the Witchcraft franchise, right? Um, of which I just wrote the fifteenth and sixteenth installments, and helped on the story for the fourteenth. Wow! Yeah. So how much research in a 14, 15, and 16 running franchise do you have to do to prepare for these? Well, I actually did quite a bit. I went through, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to get a little meta with it, right? So they have these continuing characters that have been with the franchise for almost the whole thing. And, you know, the rights to this franchise bounce around, right? The current person well i don't think he holds the rights but he was making the movies with people who holds the rights david sterling mm-hmm. david sterling those of you who know low budget horror that name will probably ring a bell um he can make a dollar out of a dime that guy um uh so it's a little inconsistent in the history of it but there are some characters that have basically gone through the entire franchise so i i didn't watch everyone but i you know read up on the plots of all of them and sort of tracked the characters and all this stuff and um yeah, and so then I created I created the fifteenth and sixteenth um, uh, episodes, and the sixteenth was it started out as a witchcraft movie about the witchcraft franchise. So it's called Ho- Witchcraft Sixteen Colon Hollywood Coven, and it is set in the world of people making the witchcraft franchise. And it turns out that the witchcraft franchise is, of course, actually witches. Like they're really being witches when they're making these movies, and the reason they're doing it is 
make these sacrifices on camera, but they're cursed. <laughs> and everybody that's been in a witchcraft movie has died. <laughs> so that was the original pitch and what I wrote. They changed the name of the franchise in the movie to something else um, when they finally shot it. Um, but yeah, that was it. So it was, I, I wrote, I fixed this, uh, fixed, well, I contributed to the story on 14 and then 15 and 16, and I had to write them so they could all be shot at the same time. So it had to have the same number of actors. It had to have all the same locations or, or a location that could be redressed. Okay. And, um, and I had to track the names. So even though in the 16th one, it's people that are playing characters, I had to have them have the same names as the one is the 14 and 15. It was really, it was, it was a puzzle uh, to put that all together. And they sure enough, they shot three movies, I think in nine days, I think, and maybe it may be that, which was Socket's actual production schedule too. But yeah, they shot all three movies. That is wild. It's nuts. And, you know, I can't imagine these actors having to like jump from movie to movie, you know. Um, will, will you return for Witchcraft 17? I don't know. You know, I like working for David. Again, I, we were talking earlier about how I've had very little penetration into the low-budget horror world, even though I'm willing to write for pennies because I just love to do it. And I, I understand because most of these production companies have a very strict sort of template. Right. They need people that can follow that template without having have to screw with it, you know, so they can just hand it in and it can be shot. Right. So I understand. It's going to be, it's hard. But hey, everybody at the asylum or Fred Olin Ray or those people, I'll write for free. <laughs> um uh, I won't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I won't really write for free, but I might as well have for these witchcraft movies. Let's be honest. Um, and so David is a funny guy. I wrote, let's see, I wrote a movie for him called Ebola, and that was when Ebola was big. Do you remember when Ebola oh, was yeah. big? It had a moment, but then yeah. the next season we got bird flu and right. everything changed. <laughs> well, and that's it. And so Ebola never got made. I wrote Ebola, and it. You know, I thought it was pretty good, and um. It was about people getting Ebola. And, but then, yeah, it, you know, even though I wrote that movie in literally a week, by the time I got it and got it to David, we had moved on to, the, you know, everybody's like, Ebola, isn't that terrible? It's like, no, damn. Um, and so then I didn't hear from him for a while. And then um, every once in a while, he would like reach in and be like, would you be able to write like, you know, a vamp all vampires in a house movie? And sure. And then that would never happen. So then the witchcraft thing came around. Um, and I haven't really heard from him since but i know that if i texted him he'd be like hey uh i'm thinking about doing this other you know series of what you want so um i'm just i'm in school like i just you know i as much as i can write those movies really quickly uh, until i finish my thesis which will be in the next couple months um i can't do it so yeah but i would absolutely go there absolutely i want to have a imdb filled with the credit right like right. i've got a good start I didn't write Gay Bed and Breakfast with Terror, but it's on there and Witchcraft, you know, the Witchcrafts and Socket. I would I would love nothing more than my IMDb to be like Megabats versus, you know, Jumbo Rats or whatever. You know, <laughs> any anything like that would be. I want Megabats versus Jumbo Rats to be greenlit before this episode is done. <laughs> well, considering that some of those movies are made for $10, we could probably put it together ourselves. That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I want to ask over the course of all of these writings, mm -hmm. um, maybe not the witchcraft movies, but a lot of the themes that you return to in your work does have to do with LGBT characters and mm -hmm. identity. Uh, as a writer, do you feel it's important to include those narratives in your work? Hmm. Well, I will say, uh, the witchcraft movies do have hot lesbians in them. So okay. I feel like I'm doing my job, my part for the community. 
for the hot lesbian of fans. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I liked. I mean, uh, in the it's funny. My friend Alexander Billings just brought this up to me. I don't. Do you watch Transparent? I do. She's on Transparent. She plays Davina. She plays the recently disgraced uh, Jeffrey Tambor's best friend on the show. Right. Um, and she's like, and she's a big fan of mine. She's one of the reasons why I'm in grad school. You know, whatever. Uh, and she's like, where's your gay play? Where's your gay play? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I have that in me. So a part of me is like, yes, obviously I, we need, we need the representation out there. And, and, um, and, and more, and I want to say inconsequentially, if that makes sense, like right. we, we don't need more representation if it's going to be a stunt or if it's going to be a prop or a plot point, we need people out there that are just gay people doing their jobs. Right. Um, so yes, when I was writing for Disney, I would always make sure that I put the ethnicity of characters in the character descriptions to force the casting directors to look for black actors or Asian actors. Cause I knew that the default would be white. Right. And so I thought I'm going to do my part. I mean, you know, my little part And when I was writing for Sabrina there, the Christmas episode, I made sure that I put that the Santa Claus is African American because I thought in these little ways we, you know, I can do this little tiny bit. Right. So it's the same with, you know, gay characters. I, I try to throw that in there. It's a little harder because gay, I mean, yes, we, we can probably spot somebody who's gay, who's obviously gay. Right. Um, but because it is a, oh, I don't know, it's not a manifestation of some sort of outward appearance necessarily. It's a little harder to be like, this person is gay and then make him inconsequential because then how do you know that he's gay if he's right. not like doing something, having a boyfriend or something? Um, but yes, so that is that is where I stand. I, I, you know, there needs to be more gay stories, but there also just needs to be more gay people, you know, there helping out, being part of the, the fabric of life. I couldn't agree more, and I feel like what a statement that sums up what we love here at Dead for Filth. <laughs> now, before we head off into the night, I do want to ask you uh, about your involvement with AIDS Life Cycle. Mm, okay. Because I don't think I've ever had a guest come on that mm. has talked about it before. Oh, well, so AIDS Life Cycle is this, um, it's an event. It's a bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles over a week. And it is 3,000 people. And that's about 2,500 riders and about 500 what we call roadies. And it's basically a small city that just moves down the coast over a week. It's the largest AIDS fundraising um, event in the world, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, the past couple years, it's made $16 million wow. or around there. Um, and my husband and I have done it for six years. And he's a rider and I'm a roadie. And it's it's a really great week. It is just it, talk about summer camp. It's like you are in, in the midst of 3000 people that are all there for the same reason, but are all very different people. Right. And so you all speak the same language. Um, and you know, you're, you're rubbing elbows with people that you would never in, in your day to day life. Right. Like I'm on, I'm, I'm part of a team called pack up and our job, um, is to pack up the camp every day. So after everybody leaves, we stay behind we literally pack up 3000 people's worth of stuff and then bring it to the next camp, like race to the next camp before the cyclists get there and then hand it to the setup people. And on that, and then we're hauling garbage all day. And on that team, you know, one year we had somebody from the like board of the gap and uh, this white collar accountant guy and a military dude and a newly HIV, a positive converted, zero converted 
dude from New York. Like it's just all these disparate people that are there for whatever reasons. And it's, it's really, I don't know. I can't speak highly enough of it. Um, and then the writing part, you know, it's, it seems like an insurmountable task, like 545 miles over a day. And it's really hard. Yeah. I see these cyclists and it's really hard. My husband will attest to the fact that it's really hard, but it's, it's like the Peace Corps. It's like the toughest job you'll ever love. Like it is so hard, <laughs> both being a roadie and a rider. It is so hard, but the, the satisfaction you get when you're done is unbeatable. And I'm, you know, I, I will brag a little bit. My husband and I, over the six years we did it, raised over a hundred thousand dollars together for AIDS Life Cycle. Wow. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. Thumbs up if you're in Cal. Actually, you can do it from anywhere in the country. You can come in. I just say I know people have flown in to do mm-hmm. it, which mm-hmm. is wild. Yeah, people from all over the world that do it. You know, it's it's both a, a physical um, challenge. So there's the cyclists that are like sports cyclists that come in mm-hmm. and do it. But there's also just you know they. I, I'm on a team called the New Bear Republic, which is, you know, bear-shaped guys on bikes and roadies. And let's be honest, bears are not necessarily the most athletic of people. But, you know, they all get on those bikes and they bike 545 miles down the coast. And, yeah, you know. I usually just sponsor people and I'm there at the finish line with donuts. Right. So, like, you're all doing way better than I am. I think I saw you at the finish line this year. Probably. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it is, yeah, it's, it's a really... Um, I don't know. It's hard to describe what it is, but it is like summer camp in that, you know, you do your thing during the day or a cult. I also call it the most fun cult ever <laughs> because you go, you know, you're all there. You have different jobs, but you're working toward the same goal. And then at night you all you eat together, you sleep together. There's evening announcements every night and the charismatic leader, uh, you know, tells you that you're all amazing and you just need to work harder. Like it's, <laughs> it's really great. And you just, and, and it's, and if you just buy into it, it's a, it's a, a magical week. Awesome have to ask because this is a film oriented show what have you seen lately that has inspired you mm, get out get out was so super good i don't want to get into the whole like i don't believe in snubs like as far as the golden gloves and things like that i just i mean you just didn't win as far as i'm concerned right. however if if i think about my favorite horror films of the past forever they're all movies like get out that have changed things mm-hmm. and i i i just i want to meet jordan peele and just ask him like when when did you decide that you were the guy that was going to do this and because it's it's such a game changer as far as somebody brought up to me we're talking about gay horror and like what is gay horror there really isn't any gay horror i'm like oh no there's gay horror it's horror about people wanting to kill you because you're gay you know it's like that's gay horror technically and you know there's been black horror films but i can't think of one and this could be just my not having a great knowledge of film history, but I can't think of one where the premise was people wanting to do you harm because you are black. I mean, there's films obviously where that is the case, but like in the specific horror genre, right. You know, other than, yeah. I mean, that is literally, that is the stated, you know, intention of the film is to present that as the, the and of course get ready for your listeners to be like well what about this one um but, I, but that's just, what we want our listeners we, we like our listeners to join the conversation sure and hopefully if there is a film out there please share up. it yeah Show let me us up. know yeah um so i think that that i just i even even though the premise is let's be honest, redonkulous. And I don't want to spoil it for people that haven't seen it. Um, it's just, you know, it's kind of impossible, but you just go with it because it's so well put together. Well, most horror movie premises are impossible. That's true. A chainsaw cult of supermodels? 
Well, I don't know. I'm odd. I've lived in Los Angeles for a while. That's true. Um, yeah. So anyway, that was that's probably the most. I'm trying to think of the other stuff that I've seen recently. That would probably be the top of my list. Here's the thing. I'm not a completist. That's my guilty admission. Right. I don't see everything that's out there because I just can't. There was a time that I could, but now I just, I, I, I just don't have the time. And sometimes I don't have the interest, honestly. I know that we should watch everything, but. I think it's very freeing when you hit that point in your life as a film fan where you realize, though, you don't need to see every movie. Yeah. Like there are films that I see trailers for. I am appreciative of every movie that's released because I know that that's an artist doing something, Mm -hmm. but not all art is for everyone. Right. So sometimes I'll see a trailer and be like, I'm glad that exists. I hope someone enjoys that. And that's it. Like, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not a hater by nature. Mm -hmm. I just, there are some things I just don't need to see. But I remember like, you know, fresh out of school and like, I'm going to work in film. I have to see every movie that's nominated for everything. Who has the time? Right. Well, now, and now that there's a million ways for content to get out there. I mean, basically we're back to the home video explosion, right? Yeah. There's a million ways to put out your little, you know, movie made for $2.50. Well, how about I ask you this? Rather than the movies or work of other people, what are you working on now? What's coming up next? Oh, I love to talk about myself. So, um, finishing up my thesis. Um, I am going to the East Coast to do this play called Absence Makes the Heart, which is the play that took, one of the two plays that took me to the Kennedy Center. Um, And it's sort of this weird skew on the red shoes it's as if the red shoes had happened in modern day Mm -hmm. and the play is the aftermath um so you know spoiler alert the red shoes depending on which version you read well she all she dies in all of them right um and in my play she has disappeared and then eventually you find out that she's dead um but you the play is examining why like you find out slowly but surely over the play why she died um so there's that. And what are what else? I'm well, my publishing company, I've got a couple um, collections coming out, one of whom. So there's an off off Broadway writer named Ross McLean, who mainly worked in Los Angeles. He worked at La Mama Hollywood. And I discovered him online and his stuff hasn't been published. And I think it's really great. And so we've been working together to get basically a complete works of his together of all of the stuff from off off Broadway, which is, by the way, that was my entree into theater as, as I got a little older was I'm fascinated with the off off Broadway history, the early history of it. And I've, I've had the fortune to meet people like Bob Moss, who, who created playwrights horizons, who was one of my instructors at Holland's and Robert Patrick, who wrote Kennedy's children is out here in Los Angeles. And now this Ross McLean guy. So anyway, um, so his, his collection will be coming out via plays to order. I would hope within the next, month or so i'm leaving to do this play so that i'm a one-man band when it comes to this publishing company (laughs) so if i'm you know off you know doing a play somewhere i'm completely immersed certain things so those are the the two biggies and you know always writing the next spec horror movie and um you know look what now i hear that they like uh playwrights in hollywood because we know how to tell stories yes um so once i'm done with my thesis you know the door's open let me write let me use my mfa to write you know your mega bats versus jumbo rats the movie (laughs) that we didn't know we even wanted until today all right so final question before we head off Mm -hmm. you said that when you had initially set out to get your mfa Mm -hmm. it was because you thought you might want to teach uh and with all of the experience and all of the things that you have achieved and the things that you've done within the realm of the genre and the realm of writing, you certainly have 
a resume of which you can impart wisdom. (laughs) So from that place, what is one bit of advice that you would give to horror fans out in the world? Hmm. Horror fans. Um, Demand more. I think that we've seen by Get Out, again, I'll drop Get Out, um, that a smart horror movie can transcend the genre gutter that so many things are, are put into, not by us, but by the rest of the film community and fans and things. And so, you know, one thing I've learned through my MFA program is really, you know, you were talking about writing horror movies and writing Christmas movies and the similarities between them. And I think the similar similarity in all of them is it's based on character, right? right. Like characters with, you know, wants and needs and and obstacles and character um and get out has that just it's overflowing with it and um so yeah aim you know aim higher ask for more demand more support things that give you more um and you know it will be an eternal fight i'm not going to pretend that you know like we saw it with Brokeback Mountain, right? We all love Brokeback Mountain. It was a studio movie, but that that didn't end up with more good gay movies, right? Right. So it will it will, it will be an eternal struggle, but I think we should. It, it, it is a good fight to fight. Um. So demand more. Demand more. Sean, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Facebook. I think I'm the only Sean Abley on Facebook. Uh, they can find me at seanabley.com, and they can find me at playstoorder.com. Both websites that are frequently updated, but haven't been touched in a little while. So, <laughs> don't you know? Most mostly, I'm also on Twitter. I have a I have a Twitter account that gets like zero traction. Um, but I'm I'm there. I'm gay of the dead on Twitter. Well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. For all the work that you've done for gay horror over the years, I certainly owe a lot to you myself. So it's my pleasure to have you here. Oh, I love it. Thanks for having. Me. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always, and Glam and Gorham. Good night, and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.